Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the William Adams Studios here in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we travel to the heart of the Ottoman Empire as we explore the history of Christian missions with Valparaiso University Professor of Theology Melanie Trexler. We discuss her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's an assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University, and we're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. Melanie, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. I'm glad to be here with you. I I have to say, just at at the beginning, I'm fascinated by the project that you have done here. And one of the reasons why I know that I was fascinated is because I have paid so little attention to Baptists or Lebanon in the last 20 years. And when I started reading the book, I just got wrapped up in, you really made a a very, a very long stretch of history, uh, just utterly uh, approachable and, and wonderful. And so I just want to say, first of all, thank you for writing the book. Well, thank you for reading it. I appreciate it. Well, and so let's, for our listeners' sake, let's kind of start at the beginning. And when we talk about Baptists, we're talking about a denomination of the Christian Church. If people are aware of Baptists, they're probably aware of Southern Baptists. And so yes. why don't we start there? What, when we talk about Baptists over against Southern Baptists, what would be some of the similarities, differences? What, what do we need to know? Well, when you're thinking about Baptists just in general, you're thinking about a group of Protestants who share a lot of evangelical convictions. So a belief that an individual needs to have a profession of faith in Christ, and that that's the choice of the individual. You've got an idea that you need to be baptized. And by that, I mean a believer's baptism in which the individual decides to be baptized and then is usually dunked. Those are kind of two of the main tenets. You're also going to have an idea of the priesthood of all believers. So the idea that everyone can be a minister, not just someone who is ordained. Now, of course, Baptists do have ordained ministers, um, but the idea is that the laity play a really big role within that. When we start to think about Southern Baptist, we're thinking about a group that came together in 1845 in the United States who tried to figure out what are we going to do as a group of people who share this Baptist conviction in light of slavery. And so in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention formed as a group that said, we're coming together. We have a certain understanding of kind of a convention leadership model where we are here, we're dedicated to missions, and we're going to do missions with two different wings. We're going to have a foreign mission board, and we're going to have a home mission board. So you mentioned just a moment ago the notion of missions, and I wonder for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with that term or what that term has meant historically, when Christians talk about mission, what are they talking about? Obviously, that's going to be a debated term. Um, in general, for the Baptist especially, it gets into an idea of, of evangelism, of an outreach of the church in which they try to lead people to a personal commitment in faith in Jesus Christ by the work that they do. And that work can be kind of very intentional, a sharing of faith through, through testimony, or it might be through social services, through running of hospitals, through running orphanages, or even potentially schools. And when, when we think about the kind of structure of Baptist churches, I'm, I was intrigued and, and learned a lot about the kind of delicate dance between authority and autonomy 
in in sort of Baptist governance structure. But what what is what is that balance that Baptists try and strike between sort of a, a governing authority like a convention and the autonomy of the local church? Sure. Each church has its own autonomy, like you just said, and that means that the church should be able to govern itself. The members and the pews get to call a minister and to vote on that minister. That group of that church gets to choose what mission projects they participated in or don't, how they allocate their budget. So each church is kind of an independent body in and of itself. Those bodies of churches can choose to be part of a convention structure, meaning that they're linked together in a shared vision of mission, and they're linked together through a shared cooperative program of funding in which when they give money to foreign mission, it's the understanding that it's going to be going toward the foreign mission board of the Southern Baptist Convention that will then appoint missionaries and allocate that money accordingly. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, there's, there's an independent church that says, we want this pastor and we want to participate in these projects. But then they, they pool their money together collectively so that they can go abroad and they can bring the gospel to others around the world. Am I hearing that distinction correctly? Yes, you were hearing that correctly. And they do the same thing on the domestic front as well. So having both a foreign mission board and a home mission board. And does that ever lead to conflicts, or is that always just a very smooth process? Oh, it leads to conflicts all the time. Well, we'll, um, we'll, we'll get into that, but, but for now, let's yeah. just say uh, that you're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're talking today with Melanie Trexler, and she's an assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. And we're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. So let's let's start to, to get into this. So you, you mentioned that some of the hallmarks of, of Baptists as an evangelical wing of the Christian church would be that they want someone to make a distinct profession of faith. They want someone to be baptized and to have a believer's baptism, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, and that they're committed to the notion of the priesthood of all believers. And, and let's sort of go in reverse order. So when we talk about the priesthood of all believers, I think a lot of times— uh, People who are used to more liturgical churches might say, well, we have a bishop, or we've got an authority structure in the presbytery. What, what does the priesthood of all believers mean over against those kind of more hierarchical structures? The priesthood of all believers gets at this idea that every person is a minister. So everybody is empowered to share their understanding of the gospel with the rest of the world. It means that every individual has the capability to lead a church. Now, that said, Baptists do have ordained ministers. The difference is going to come in with that hierarchical structure where you might have a bishop or you might have a priest that kind of um, is in charge of everything. That doesn't really work within the Baptist format. The preacher is one voice among many that, that helps to organize and plan and lead a church. So while you see the preacher up front on a Sunday, he's not the only one or she's not the only one in charge. And moving uh, sort of backwards through your list, when we think about this notion of believer's baptism, uh, what is distinct about that? It's the idea that the individual, when they're at the age of accountability, and of course that's, that's debated when, when are you accountable for what you know, but regardless of if you take that to be at seven or you take it to be at 19, um, when you get to that age of accountability, that you make a choice that you want to be baptized. And you do that because you are a believer in Christ and that Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life. And that when you make that choice to, to be baptized as a believer, you usually are immersed. And so um, Baptists are often referred to as the ones who dunk. Uh, believer's baptism leads to that dunking kind of process. And and I'm I'm... I'm just going to make sure that our, our listeners are aware that this means that there is never a process of infant baptism in, in the Baptist communities. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Okay. And, and in fact, that if we go back in history, there was, there was deep tension and even sometimes fighting over that issue uh, when we look at the origins of Baptists in Europe, in the Anabaptist movement, right? Absolutely. And, and, so, and so this, we know that historically that Baptists are, are a, a faith tradition that has strong positions and will take strong positions over against the prevailing uh, whims of culture. Is that a fair characterization? 
that's a very fair characterization. So, so let's talk about that in terms of this notion of a profession of faith. So when, when someone says that they've made a profession of faith as part of their journey into the Baptist Church or in joining the Baptist Church, is there a, is there a set creed that they say? Is there a, a set uh, uh, arrangement of words? Or what is a profession of faith in, in the Baptist tradition? Absolutely. There is not a set creed. Um, one of the things that, that would mark Baptists is that they're actually anti-creedal. Um, now, that said, when you look at the Southern Baptist Convention, they do have a statement of faith. Um, and that basically just outlines kind of the basic tenets and principles that Baptists will believe in, incur, in, which include the importance of the Bible, the importance of Christ and, and what Christ has done for humanity, as well as what salvation might look like. When someone makes a profession of faith for Baptist, that's basically just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he came to, to earth, that he died for our sins, and that he's offered us salvation. That, that's what a profession of faith would look like. Now, if I'm, if I'm remembering my history correctly, Baptists got started around the St. George's Hill area around 1649-1650. You gave us a, a sort of a, a moment in time of 1845, which was a, yeah. an important moment for American Baptist traditions. Yeah. But in your book, you exposed me to something that I had never thought about before but had wondered about, and that was the notion, and I'm hoping I'm going to say it correctly, the notion of landmarkism. And, yeah. and what that means, and and what, and if I'm understanding correctly, landmarkism is a way that Baptists connect themselves to Christian history prior to 1845 and prior to 1649-1650, all the way back to Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. Could you tell us about that? Sure. The landmark kind of, I guess we'll call it an ideology or theology, emerged on the frontiers of Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, during kind of the middle of the 1800s. And it was, in a way, a response to Methodism and a response to the Wesleyans, um, a response to Campbellites. And what landmarkists were trying to do is to say, we need to practice the landmarks of our religious beliefs. We need to practice baptism by a believer's baptism, not by this infant baptism that's going on. We need to make sure that we're reading the Bible as the message of God. And so landmark, landmarkist, excuse me, would try to say our theology has been here since the time of Jesus. And so they would trace their teachings back all the way to John the Baptist as a way to kind of connect in and say, we're not new. We're not doing anything abnormal. In fact, we're teaching the same thing that Jesus was teaching. And so it was a way to kind of legitimate themselves on the frontier of the U.S. during a time when we're starting to see the rise of different denominations. And that legitimacy is important uh, because, as you said, when you, were, when you were on the frontier, you had others who were evangelizing who were seminary trained, and the people in these Baptist communities weren't always seminary trained. They, they, were, they were responding to a call that was internal. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely true, yes. Okay, so, so this was a way of saying, no, we've got legitimacy, but my understanding from your book is that the landmarkers took it even farther than that to say not only are we a legitimate church, but in fact that the landmark churches are the only true churches. Is that, did I, did I get that correctly? Absolutely. They wanted to make sure that if you were kind of outside their church, then you weren't really a church. You didn't follow the instructions. And that went so far as to say, if you're baptized, even if you're baptized as a believer, but it doesn't happen in the particular landmark church that you're going to every Sunday, then you have to be rebaptized. Your baptism was invalid because it's not happening in that local church that you're part of. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's an assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. 
Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's an assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. So in your book, uh, this is not a history of the Baptist Church in America. This is a history, actually, of the rise of Baptist churches in the near Middle East, in Lebanon. And so let's, let's pivot then to start to talk about that. So what was some of the early history of, of a Christian church in the Lebanese context that identified itself as Baptist? Sure. Christians have been in Lebanon, uh, depending upon who you want to <laughs> accept, since the time of Jesus. So Christians have been in Lebanon basically since Christianity has been around. Protestants have been in Lebanon since about 1823, and those were were what we would now identify as Presbyterians. The Baptist didn't get started until 1895, and that happened because of a man named Saeed Jaradini. He traveled to the U.S. in 1893 as part of the Turkish exhibit at the Chicago World Fair. And while he was here in the U.S. in Chicago, he started hearing all of these street preachers. And he thought that they were babblers and didn't really buy into what they were saying. Something happened to change that. And he ended up visiting a friend and attended a Baptist church and had an evangelical experience. And he converted. And he went back to Lebanon when he he worked at that time in a photography shop. And so he would close his shop on Sundays to preach. And people started kind of recognizing him as a preacher. He made a couple of of people believe what he had to say, and they agreed with him. And so about 1895, he had around probably eight converts, potentially. The group that baptized him here in the U.S. was happening to take a trip to the Holy Land. They visited Giardini, ordained him in Lebanon, and that was kind of the first Baptist we have in that that part of the, the world. If I'm hearing this correctly, so the Apostle Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and in, in Giardini we have a person who traveled to this this event that was secular but also had sort of a very religious component in, in the, the World's Fair in Chicago. That was the first parliament of the world's religions, and so it was the time when people first had a chance to be exposed on a mass level to things like Christian science and the Baha'i and, and, mm-hmm. and all these different, you know, sort of both Western and Eastern variants of, of various religious traditions. And so Giardini hears these babblers, these street preachers, and somehow the the word gets down into his soul and he becomes a person of faith. And if I'm hearing you correctly, he takes this and begins to plant a small community. And did I hear you correctly that his community only had eight participants when he was... Initially, yes. And and then the the group that had baptized him was making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and then they they stopped in and they said, oh, let's stop off and see Mr. Giardini. And they stopped in and they said, well, you're doing fine work here. Let's, Let's make this official. Now, this is what I really want to ask about. Because we've talked about authority and autonomy, and because local churches are autonomous, when this organization was passing through Beirut and they decided to ordain Giardini, was he then his own head of his own church, or was he beholden to the people back in America? Really good question. He would have been the head of his own church. That said, because the Baptist faith that he was the most familiar with came out of the U.S., he had these ties to the U.S., particularly to the Third Baptist Church in St. Louis that baptized him. So while they didn't hold authority over Giardini, Giardini wanted to make sure that there was a link that he maintained because that's where he learned about what Baptists were doing. And so you see him as kind of the leader of his church and guiding his, his flock, if you will, but also wanting that connection to make sure that, that he keeps that conversation going so that he keeps learning and growing and, um, and even getting financial resources, which would have been really important, particularly at the turn of the century. Now, I'm pretty clear that when St. Louis looked across the ocean, they looked at a church like Giardini's and they said, that's the mission field. 
But when, when Gerardini was sitting in his church and preaching, did he look at, around at his congregation and say, this is the mission field? Or did he look at the area outside of Beirut that, that didn't have a church in it and say, no, no, that's the mission field? Like how, what was his perspective at that moment? From some of the early documents that I have, it seems like he looked at his immediate community and said, this is the mission field. That was kind of the, the close mission field, if you will, the proximate other for him. Because he looked around, and what he saw would have been a lot of Orthodox Christians. And for Giardini, who he, w- he grew up Orthodox, he knew, he knew what it was like to go to services and hear formal Arabic and to watch the rites being performed. And not always, for him, he didn't always know what that was about. And so he, he thought that that meant other people in his own community would have had those same kind of feelings. And so when he was preaching, he was trying to preach to these Orthodox Christians and trying to say, look, we're going to speak in dialect. We're going to let you get into the biblical text on your own, and we're going to help you to do that. We're not going to do these rites that you don't maybe not understand. Instead, we're going we're gonna to practice with you. At the same time, he also tried to convert other Protestants. He went after other Presbyterians. He had a little easier time with them because they had already made a transition to Protestantism. He just offered a new type of Protestantism. He also looked at Muslims and said, I, I want to try to convert you to become a Baptist as well. So much there that I want to get into. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it reminds me of an experience when, when I went with a, a youth group down to the central portion of Mexico. We were riding in the van in, and and the person who was the guide and who would be our sort of leader for the week said, yeah, this, you know, this entire place is a mission field for us. And I sort of piped up from the back of the van. I said, it's 80 to 85 percent Catholic down here. And he said, yeah, none of these people know Jesus. I mean, <laughs> but what, what I'm hearing you saying is that what Giardini did at first was mainly poach other Christian traditions to try and come to his Baptist tradition. Am I hearing that correctly? Absolutely. Okay, and that's, I mean, there, there's an interesting sort of social and political question to ask about that. These people in many ways were already Christian, so they weren't being, they weren't being brought into the Christian faith, but because of this notion of landmarkism, there was this ideology that says, well, they, they're talking like Christians, but they're not real Christians. Am I hearing that right? That is absolutely true, yes. And that's fascinating. So what was their pushback from the Orthodox community and the other Protestant communities, or were they, were they cool with him sort of poaching their people? They were definitely not cool with him poaching other people. And in fact, uh, Baptists often have the reputation of being sheep stealers because of this. And so you see priests that, that kind of tell Giardini off and ask him, please don't, don't do this anymore. We're not really appreciative of that. You are going to see people may not come to the church or come to hear him preach because they're, they're kind of afraid of him. You see people making fun of him. Uh, why is he speaking this dialectical Arabic? Doesn't he know that that's not how you talk to God, um, and why is he Protestant? This isn't even part of our, our culture. So you do, see, you do see pushback against Giardini. Part of the battle that he's fighting is theological. We have the truth, but part of it is also linguistic. It's, it's almost like, hey, you can talk to God in a different way than you've been raised to talk to God. Mm-hmm. And I would even tell you part of it's political, because you have a man who is born, raised, culturally Arab, and yet he is practicing a religious tradition that is, or at least appears to be, Western. And so becoming Protestant is a, is a political choice, because you're making, a, you're making an allegiance. And what we see, particularly in the Lebanese case, even starting in the 1600s, different religious groups in Lebanon would affiliate with foreign powers, and usually co-religionists. So for example, France offered protection to Catholics in Lebanon, to Maronite Catholics in particular, because they were co-religionists. And so whenever Maronites would need something, they could look to the French for support at different times. You would also see this happening potentially with Baptists. They wanted to have some type of co-religionist support from outside. And so by choosing to be Baptist, you were choosing to align with the West, particularly with the U.S. in this case. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's an assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're speaking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. And we're getting into the question of culture now. So looking at this, we've been talking about how Giardini 
uh, would sort of poach other Christians to try and become Baptist. But he also, as you said, was doing outreach to Muslims. And what was the, the sort of political and linguistic and social implication of that kind of outreach? The majority of what he did in terms of Muslims was kind of on two fronts. The first was just a very individual, let's have a conversation. I know you, you're in my shop. You might be a part of my village. Let's just talk. And so that tended to be under the radar. You would hear some pushback, but but there were conversations. Uh, Keep in mind, Christians and Muslims had been living together in Lebanon. It wasn't abnormal for conversation to be happening, particularly on a personal level. Giardini also did some preaching for some of the Protestant schools in the area. So the Syrian mission would often have Giardini come and preach. Um, The Presbyterians would as well. I mean, he could kind of pack the pews for people to hear. And the Presbyterians tried to hire him to be to be a preacher for them. A couple, maybe some Anglicans. The records are a little a little not clear on that. But the idea that that other missionaries were seeing in Giardini was that he spoke the dialect and he understood the culture. And so he was able to kind of infuse cultural idioms that Muslims are really familiar with, such that um, like a saying such as God is closer to you than your jugular vein. That's a prominent phrase in the Quran that all Muslims would know. Well, Giardini would take that and he would say, God is closer to you than your jugular vein. In fact, God is so close to you that he came in the form of Jesus as the Christ. So he would take a theological concept that Muslims are very familiar with and spin it and infuse it with a Christian message. And so other missionaries looked at Giardini and liked what he was able to do because he knew how to preach in a way that Muslims could hear and and start to think about. Um, Now, if you want to start talking about was he successful in terms of converts, No, we just don't have the data to support that. But he was successful in being able to kind of give Muslims a message in a Christian format. If, if we think about the history of American Christianity, and, and particularly at a period like the Great Awakening, I, probably the, the sermon that is best known from the Great Awakening would be Jonathan <laughs> Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a prototypical sermon that Gerardini would have given or something that would, would have been sort of the, the benchmark of the message at that time as the church was growing in Beirut among the Baptists? Not to my knowledge. We just don't have the records. From from stories that I hear, he liked to tell people a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. Seems to be something that, that comes up from, from the missionaries that he would talk about a lot. But other than that, I, I can't point to anything in particular, no. When we talk about the the Arab-speaking Christian churches, we're talking about churches that are historically identified as Eastern. When, mm-hmm. when we talk about the Baptist church that's based in St. Louis or here in America, we're talking about a church that's come through a branch that is typified as Western. So the, the, great, the great schism around 1000, where the Eastern church and the Western church split, all the Baptists come off the split from the Western church. And so already we have a, a strange division in, in Christian culture. And so what you're talking about here is literally the people who are moving from an Eastern Christian tradition to a a Baptist Christian tradition, from the Orthodox Church to the Baptist Church, they're crossing a lot of cultural barriers all at once in doing that, aren't they? Yes. And do do we have a sense of kind of what that meant to their families, what that meant to their livelihoods, what that meant to to their their place in the in the the culture of Beirut at that time? Sure, within the the context of Lebanon, but also in in what is now the wider Middle East, you have a sense that you were born into live in and die in your religious community. So religion isn't just this category of this is what I believe. It's also a social category. It structures your entire life from the education you receive to the kind of wedding that you might have to your inheritance, to your job, to where you might live. So when you choose to become Baptist, you're choosing to, in a way, turn your back on your family. And that can be taken in a lot of ways. Some families may not have liked it, but they would have still accepted that person as part of their family. Other families may not have liked it, and that could have resulted in the loss of jobs. It might have resulted in being run out of town, having to live somewhere else. Um, In some cases, 
It meant that the, the families don't even talk to each other anymore. Uh, the last one doesn't happen very often, but it, it could happen. Now, as Gerardini ages, the, his church remains and begins to grow and change. And so I want to hear a little bit about how his church sort of grows and changes as his ministry wanes. But I'm also interested in, in the parallel of how the Baptist church in the West, in America, is growing and changing in parallel to that. Sure. So around 1900, I think, 1902, Giardini realizes that he wants his church to grow. It's happening, but really slowly, and that he needs an actual physical church building in order to, to make that happen. The idea, particularly at this time, for people in the area would have been, if you don't have a church that's your own, then you're just kind of a transitory group. You might be here for a couple more years, but you might not be here long term. And if you're not going to be here long term, why would you want to join this church? So Giardini realized this. And so he came back to the U.S. on a fundraising expedition, hoping, hoping that he could join forces with some Baptist organization in the U.S. to help fund him. And so he showed up in Arkansas to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. And at this meeting, he asked for the Southern Baptist Convention to please support him. At that point in time, historically, the Southern Baptists are trying to figure out where are we going to expand missions. So it was kind of a good moment for Giardini to be in the U.S. The problem that Giardini faced was that when he got back into the U.S., he ran into a group of landmark Baptists and had formed friendships with them. And the Southern Baptist Convention leaders, who did not like the Landmarkist, didn't like the fact that Giardini had aligned with Landmarkist and, and they were his friends. And so the Southern Baptist refused to fund or to support Giardini because Giardini was friends with and had kind of chosen sides unknowingly with the Landmarkist. So when Giardini went back into Beirut, he went not with the support of the Southern Baptist Convention, but with the support of kind of a schismatic landmark group. And that group had pledged to give Giardini around $1,000, which at that time would have been a lot of money, a year, to help to, to build this church. Giardini never received that much in any given year. And so as he starts to build the church, he keeps trying to make connections with the Southern Baptists. And the Southern Baptists keep telling him no. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention does eventually send missionaries into Palestine in 1923. And while those missionaries are kind of traveling around the region to get a sense of, of the land and what Christians are where and where do they need to build a headquarters, these Southern Baptist missionaries run into Giardini, and they've never heard about him. And so they start befriending him. Eventually, they bring Giardini into the to the Southern Baptist Convention as a worker and start to, to support his mission from Palestine. Giardini continues to grow the church, they are, which is pretty impressive considering they were going through two major world wars at that time. And he continues to ask, you know, would you please just send a missionary couple here? I think that would be really helpful to us. And so the first missionary couple finally arrives around 1948. And when they do, they arrive to a church of people who, who want to grow and who seem to be very serious about their faith, but they just don't know how to go about it because they don't have the financial resources to do it. And so with the help of this missionary couple, Finley and Julia Graham, the Young Baptist Church in Beirut starts to find another house to rent. They start to buy property. They open a school, they open a seminary, and they start to expand kind of institutionally and with more programs for education. And that becomes a way for the Baptist community to be much more visible than they had ever been before. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's Assistant Professor of Theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. We'll be back in a moment. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout-out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work 
every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to Melanie Trexler. She's assistant professor of theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. So before the break, you were discussing the expansion of Giardini's uh, Baptist community in the in Lebanon and in, in Beirut. It's fascinating to me in your description that not only was there friction in the Christian community in Beirut, but he also managed to trip over friction in the very Baptist community that he was coming back to appeal to for funds and for resources. So he managed to fall in with the wrong group of Baptists, and that ran him afoul of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I, what, what, I, what I was fascinated by was that as the Southern Baptist Convention was reaching out and beginning to missionize back into the near Middle East— I almost had this vision of they're going to come and try and poach some of Giardini's people to join their Baptist church. Am I am I characterizing that correctly? <laughs> that that seems like a good description to be happening at that point. Yeah. And it, what was especially interesting around the end of World War II is that you start to see other mainline denominations scaling back because there's kind of a shift in conversation happening in Christian communities, particularly in the West, about what is our relationship to Christians in the East? What is our relationship to non-Christians? And and is the way that we've been going about mission work the right way to be doing mission work? And there's sort of two things that happen during this period from around 1900 to 1949 or so. And one is is the founding of the the Near East Baptist Missions, and, Mm -hmm. and the other is the founding of the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. And I wonder if we could talk quickly about the founding of both of those institutions. Sure. In 1923, the Near East Baptist Mission was founded when the Southern Baptists finally decided that they were going to send two missionary couples to Palestine with the intention of these two missionary couples to get a lay of the land and to figure out where is the best place for Baptists to have a headquarters in the Holy Land. And as they're looking around, they realize that most of the Christian groups are based in Palestine. And other Christian groups actually said, please don't stay in Palestine. We would like you to go elsewhere, please. And the Baptists decided, no, that's where they wanted to be for their headquarters. So they established the Near East Baptist Mission in 1923 in in Palestine, particularly around Jerusalem. That mission never, ever had more than nine missionaries at any point in time between 1923 and 1948. So it was a very small mission for the Southern Baptist Convention, it cost a lot of money and didn't really yield much in terms of churches or people deciding to attend those churches. So much so that the Southern Baptist Convention had discussions about, are we going to close this mission altogether? They decided not to after World War II, and instead they decided to expand. And that's when they sent Finley and Julia Graham first into Jordan, And then the Grahams decided to come into Lebanon because there was this Baptist community that Giardini had started. The Baptist community that Giardini started asked the Grahams to come. They wanted that connection. They wanted that that source of support. And so with the help of the Grahams, they they opened the Beirut Baptist School for K through 12. Eventually it expanded to that. And then they also opened the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. The point there being that if you can educate and train Arab Baptist, they can then be leaders in their churches and help to grow this particular denomination even more. I, I want to make sure that our, our listeners understand that when a, a couple made the decision to go into the mission field, they were basically making that decision for life. Is that correct? They were they were going to be part of this community for the next several decades. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And in fact, many many of these missionaries were forced to retire when they hit seventy, um, and they didn't they didn't go out wanting to. 
so much so that, that many of them, when they hit retirement age, they would retire and then they would choose to still live in the mission field, continuing to do the work that they had been doing. And that's simply because in order for this process to work, you have to really invest yourself in the culture. Mm-hmm. And and so I wonder, did that ever cause friction? Because you have a, a, a very Western, very American I- idea of theology, and people who live in and amongst a foreign culture with different ideas and different notions and descriptions for God, they're inevitably going to try and find ways to translate, and sometimes those translations might be kind of not comfortable to the people back home. Did those sort of friction points ever come up? Absolutely. A lot of the missionaries um, in interviews would talk about how when they got back to the U.S. on furlough, so there are kind of like mini vacations that could be anywhere from six months to a year, they would have a really hard time talking to their friends that they'd had all their life because they had been living in Lebanon or other places in the Middle East, and they they didn't have the same cultural idioms any longer. The missionaries realized that they had changed in how they thought and in how they understood the ways in which the West operated in the East. At the same time, when you talk to Lebanese Baptists, they also kind of had a, a cultural clash at points with the missionaries. Um, so, for example, a lot of the missionaries lived on the mountain outside of Beirut. So they weren't always where two of the largest Baptist churches were in downtown Beirut, and the missionaries lived outside. So sometimes there were clashes that occurred because the missionaries opted to live in houses outside the city, while a lot of the Baptists attended the churches in the city. So they didn't have a lot of that crossover day-to-day interaction that some of the Lebanese Baptists would have wanted. Now, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that a central tenet of the Baptist faith is the notion of the priesthood of all believers, and you characterize that by saying everyone is considered to be a minister. And yet, you've talked now about, you know, 50 years into this missionary endeavor in Beirut, they found the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary specifically to train ministers. So Mm -hmm. already we're seeing a a culture shift there as well. Did that create any friction, or was uh, was that simply reflecting the natural progression and evolution of the Baptist communities that were happening all over the world? You know, I think some of both. So I think to the latter point of, of recognizing the evolution, people recognized that they wanted their leaders to be trained. Where the the clash came in was that the local churches in Lebanon weren't sure that the seminary was the best way to do that. And that's because there seemed to be a concern that the missionaries might bring in some liberal tenets. So in particular, maybe the missionaries weren't going to read the Bible literally in the way that the Lebanese might have read it coming out of the landmark tradition. Um, There was concern that perhaps they might do rituals differently. So, for example, collecting the offering might have happened in a different way. And so there was concern amongst the local congregations, is this the right way that we want to train our pastors? Are there other places that they should think about going instead? Um, The answer inevitably ended up being no, because they didn't really have a lot of options at that point. But those questions and those tensions definitely rose, and and even to the point where some of the churches didn't think that their ministers needed an education. Um, It was very common to be bivocational. So you might be the minister on a Sunday, but you might work at the car shop throughout the week or at the market, or you might be an accountant. So this bivocation was very normal, and so this kind of professionalization of the ministry was something new that they were facing. It's something that they that they have now since embraced, but initially they weren't too sure. Well, let me let me ask a, a similar question from a, a slightly different perspective. So, when the Presbyterian Church took its its uh, its its preachers into the mission field, one of the places that they landed was in uh, the Korean Peninsula, and so several generations later, uh, at at Western seminaries, there are Korean students who come back and sort of have a culture clash because the church that was given to them by the Presbyterians of three generations ago doesn't look like the American church now. When we look at those who are the the kind of heirs of this effort of Giardini and others to missionize Beirut for the Baptists, uh, I'm sure that there's been some times when, when people who have been born and raised in that community have come back to America. Have they recognized the Baptist church that, that, that they've found, or have they been has there been a culture clash of them saying, you you are too liberal? Do you mean when the Lebanese Baptists come to the U.S. and then return yes, exactly. back to Lebanon? Yes, exactly, as opposed to the missionaries. 
I mean, I think it depends on a couple of things. It depends, first of all, on when the Lebanese Baptists would have immigrated. So if they immigrated before the Civil War and then they're returning, they are going to see some some liberalness, I think, that may not have been there before. If they immigrated after the Civil War, maybe not quite as much liberalness, um, but but today they're definitely going to see some changes in terms of how the Lebanese Baptists are choosing to go about their mission in Lebanon and the kinds of services that they're offering um, and even the, the dialogue that they're really encouraging. Those were things that were not happening until and, pretty recently. And to be clear, you mean the Civil War in Lebanon, not the American Civil War? The Civil War in Lebanon, yes, not the one in the U.S. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's Assistant Professor of Theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We're talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures. Well, since we just mentioned the Civil War, this might be a good time to pivot to the effects that the Reagan administration and some of the foreign policy in America in the 1980s and beyond have had on this community in Lebanon. In particular, uh, with regard to foreign-based missionaries, particularly American missionaries in Beirut and in the environs around Beirut. So I, I guess part of my question would be, what was what happened when Reagan came to office and the Civil War was happening with regard to those that had been there in foreign missions in Beirut? Beirut? Once the Civil War started, so 1945, um, what you started to see was that the missionaries were in a position where they could evacuate. They did not have to stay. And several did. But many of the lifetime missionaries who had already lived a good 10 to 15 years of their life in the country refused to leave. And both the missionaries and the Lebanese Baptists will tell you that that's when the relationship between those two groups got very real. And that's when the missionaries think they did their best work because they decided to stay. And what that meant was a lot of times they spent crouched down in stairwells or hiding out with Christians in their neighborhoods or Muslims in their neighborhoods seeking shelter. And it was in those moments that the Lebanese, whether they were Baptist or Christian or Muslim or atheist, whatever, the Lebanese will look at the missionaries and say, you're American. Why are you here? You can leave. You don't have to live in a war zone. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, because in 1987, it was not just that they were strongly encouraged to leave. Their passports were literally yeah. revoked. They, they could no longer legally stay in, in, in Lebanon. And what was fascinating to me about that period is that they made uh, those that were that were American citizens that were living long term in Lebanon made an appeal based on the First Amendment. They said, "We understand that the that the State Department is asking us to do this. We're asking for a religious exemption from this edict because of our deeply held faith." Am I remembering that correctly from your book? No, that's totally correct. They thought that they had not only a freedom of choice to be there, but they had the freedom of religion to be there. Lebanese Baptist churches wrote to the State Department on their behalf saying, look, this is a religious need. Um, we want people, these missionaries here. They're part of our communities. They help to sustain us. Um, and the State Department said, you can try again in a year to get, to get permission, but, but right now, no. And from your description, that when these conscience appeals were denied, the people reluctantly left, and they thought, just as you said, that maybe they'd be back in a year. But it ended up being that that many people ended up being forced into the age of retirement, never being allowed to return to these communities where they had spent their entire lives. They were heartbroken. Um, many of them returned to the U.S. not knowing if they would ever get back into Lebanon. Several others realized that Lebanon wasn't going to be possible, and so they used their linguistic skills and went to other places to serve in the Middle East, um, hoping that one day Lebanon would become a place they could get back to. Since the 2000s, several of the missionaries have returned back to visit the community and to check in and to say hello. Um, so I think that's done some damage control and helped, helped them to heal a lot getting to go back. But they were devastated. They had given their time and their life and their love to people that, that, that they were forced to leave. So what is the state and the status of the Baptist community in Lebanon at the present time? Absolutely. So today, the Lebanese Baptist community is thriving and I think growing. Under the uh, name of the Lebanese Society, 
or the LSESD, so the Lebanese Society for Education and Social Development. The group is running the Beirut Baptist School, the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, a new group or a new um, a new school for students with special needs and learning. They're also doing projects such as building wells in the country where they're needed. They partner with Baptist organizations all around the globe in Germany with the European Baptist Federation. Um, they also run a conference called the Middle East Conference every year where they invite Christians from Lebanon, from the wider Middle East, but also from the U.S. and from Europe to come and participate in a dialogue session where people learn more about Christians in the Middle East, but they also learn about Islam. And they sit down together with Muslims in the local community and have the opportunity to talk and to, to have conversation about global events, local events, things that they want the other groups to know. Now, you yourself were raised in the Baptist faith, and uh, if I recall correctly, you have a, a near relative who was a, an ordained Baptist minister. And I'm wondering how did—because you've spent a long time sort of researching this foreign Baptist community— how has your own faith been impacted and, and affected by learning about these Baptists who lived half a world away from you? I think in part it's changed and grown because I've gotten to see, first of all, the globalness of this faith. Um, but I would also say that I've learned very much about what it looks like for a church to come together and unite together as a community and to choose consciously to do that and to come together and to look at the needs of your society and to say, okay, how are we going to come together to do this? And even if they don't have the financial resources, to watch them come together in prayer and to figure it out as a community and, and the way that they have faith that God will provide for that has been really enlightening to me. Um, but also to see how people make choices to be Baptist and find joy in that, even if, if the wider community may not understand that. And they make choices to continue to do the work that they're called to do. And I find that very inspiring and very empowering. Well, Melanie Trexler, I just loved this book. I learned so much from it, and I'm, I'm so thankful that you, you, you wrote it, because it's a, it's a portion of the world and a portion of, of the history of Christianity that I never would have thought to dig into, and getting a chance to prepare for this interview, I just learned a ton. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. It's been really fun. We've been speaking today with Melanie Trexler. She's Assistant Professor of Theology at Valparaiso University in Indiana. We've been talking about her new book, Evangelizing Lebanon, Baptists, Missions, and the Question of Cultures, published by Baylor University Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of listeners like you. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Bob Boxer engineered the show. David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. If you'd like to support Things Not Seen, please join us at patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.